0: Hi, I'm Frank Ferris, one of the principals of the Palliative Care Interdisciplinary Curriculum. I want to personally thank you for joining us for this module in our series on pediatrics.
1: All right, everybody, thanks for coming. Uh, I'm Gary Noritz. I haven't met all of you Some of you I only met once in the the boot camp kind of thing. I'm a palliative care faculty over at Nationwide. My main job is I run the Complex Care Program, which is a medical home for kids and adults with disabilities, primarily serious neurological disabilities. Um, And they need and receive quite a bit of palliative care, as you might uh, imagine. So I'm going to talk about a particular sort of problem that comes up with the patients that I take care of. It's actually something that... When, so, when I know somebody's coming for this kind of a problem, I get a little bit excited and I get a little bit worried because it can be often pretty hard to figure out. But um, our patients, are the ones that, that this primarily applies to, are patients that can't tell you what's wrong with them. And this is not a foreign concept to, for those of you that are internal medicine or family medicine trained because, you know, we take care of people with Alzheimer's, we take care of people with tracheostomies and all kinds of things where... You know, you might know something's wrong, but you don't know what it is. And that's sort of the the concept uh, that we're talking about right here. Uh, No disclosures, of course. Um, And it's a problem because we're used to taking a history in... uh, medical school, residency, and so on, this is what you know, sort of the, the core of what we do is, and particularly in palliative care, it's so much of this is history and talking and communication and somewhat secondarily, uh, physical exam and so on. So I want to just take you through how I think about this when I'm seeing a patient who comes in with this kind of Sherlock Holmes problem of something's wrong and I don't know what it is, you know, why did the dog not bark? that kind of business. Um, And I'm going to tell you how I go through that and talk about how this can really be a family-centered kind of exercise, whether you're talking about kids or adults or anywhere in between. Um, So i like to start with this slide, what is complex care, just to sort of explain what we do. And this is, uh, for those of you who took the PEDS boards, you may have seen this picture on your PEDS boards. The stem of the question is, this newborn girl has lymphedema of one limb. What tests should you send? Who knows? Anybody? You're sort of on the right track. <laughs> the answer is a karyotype because the baby has Turner syndrome. Okay? Now, why did I put this picture in the slide? Not because I want to show you my hand necessarily, but uh, uh, it's a cool picture, but I accidentally took a picture of this piece of paper here and i'm not going to venture beyond the yellow line here so this baby is actually the younger younger child of a family we already took care of where the older child had down syndrome this baby had turner syndrome how odd is that and she had been discharged from the birth hospital with this list of people she was supposed to call okay and i sort of had no idea you know, this is before I became a parent that, like, becoming a parent was so hard and required so much work. And so right up top, she knew that she had to co- call us in complex care, but they had also said, oh, by the way, call Dr. So-and-so and the endocrinologist and Dr. So-and-so and the GI doctor and the geneticist and the developmental pediatrician and so on and, and so on and so on. So this is kind of not the concept of what we do in complex care. What we do is try to integrate this for families. And it doesn't mean that I become the cardiologist or I become the GI doctor, but uh, we sort of practice at the, uh, the limit of what we can do and call the cardiologist when we need to, call the GI doctor when we need to, and really 90-95% of these kind of things we can take care of uh, in our own office and save the family a lot of hassle, um, a lot of communication difficulties, travel, and so on. So if you ever run through, uh, come through our clinic, uh, uh, those are the kinds of patients that you might see. Okay, so one of the sort of buzzwords for taking for our patients these days is children with medical complexity. Um, so who knows what children with medical complexity are? Well, there's a definition, and I don't know the definition off the top of my head, but I can tell you, uh, like Judge Potter Stewart, I know it when I see it. Okay, and that's a child with medical complexity. He's a happy guy, and he's got a tracheostomy. All right. So these are the patients that sort of come through, and they have technology dependence, they have neurologic impairment, um, and they have a lot of stuff going on. Uh, There there is an actual definition, which is along the lines of, you know, those children uh, that uh, really reach the the, the sort of pinnacle of of needing medical care. This is, I think, uh, a great slide. This is what they call a care map, and this is something a family member drew, a mom. Let me just take you through it. So this patient's name was G., and right around this patient is the family, okay? And so that's sort of the core of who takes care of this patient. Now, I spend all my time down here in the blue corner talking about um, you know all the medical stuff. Which, if you don't you know if you don't step back, you'd say, oh well, this is the whole, the kid's whole life, and everything we need to do to take care of the kid is in this medical box right here. But there's really so much more. There's a whole um, educational corner. There's a whole Uh, advocacy corner. How do you get the things that you need to take care of your child with special needs? There's all the support that a a family might get from outside the medical uh, system. Um, legal and financial support, and so on. And you can see that for a child with medical complexity, it's one of these things really, really takes a village uh, to take care of them. And if they make it to become adults with medical complexity, they often have this very well ensconced and by the time you might see them on the adult side. The problem is a lot of this falls apart in the transition over to the adult side, because a lot of this is based in the in the pediatric realm and uh, you know, and there are certain things like the Bureau of Children with Medical Handicaps, which, give, which is an alternate uh, supplemental insurance uh, program for children with medical handicaps. It disappears at the age of 21. And so that some of these things get peeled away as people get older. Okay, That's, that, those are the kids I take care of and the adults that I take care of. So let's talk about how do you take a history from somebody that can't give you a history. All right. It's easy, just listen to them. Okay. Now, when also we're saying, he said, you know, there'll be clues in what uh, the patient is telling you and the way they tell you that, oh, it hurts when I do this and it, it feels better when I do that and that kind of thing. Our patients are telling us these things, they may not be telling us in English and they may not be telling us in any other language. but. They're telling us things from the way they act, from the way they communicate with their families, uh, from their vital signs sometimes. You've got to listen. All right. Now, on the other hand, Dr. House would say, well, don't bother listening to the patient because they're lying anyway. Okay? Uh, I don't watch a lot of House, but I can tell you this. The couple episodes I've seen all go the same way. Somebody comes in with some big dramatic presentation of a, uh, uh, something terrible going on. And uh, you know the doctors all go, scurry back into a room like this and sit around and get out the chalkboard and start listing a million things that could be and all the different tests that they need to run. Um, and uh, they start ticking through all these things, uh, uh, very expensive tests, surgeries, biopsies, this thing, that thing. Uh, somewhere along the way, some people scurry off into a broom closet you know, have a romantic interlude. <laughs> and then they start going through the list, and they cross everything off. Okay? You with me? And then somebody goes and asks the patient, like, one question, one single question that gives the answer. Okay? Nobody bother asking the patient before, what kind of pets do you have? Or, um, you know, where have you traveled to? Or, uh, you know, hey, what would your mother die from? Like, those kinds of things. So it's all in the history and even if, to some extent, if the, even if the patients are lying, you can still listen and see what they're talking about. Okay, I just want to, this was just a great quote, which was basically, uh, don't order tests until you take the history. Okay, there are several diseases, like here they're talking about myasthenia gravis, that you can make the diagnosis with a history alone. Sometimes you add a little bit of physical, and you don't need any expensive tests. Uh, DeGowan and DeGowan was, you know, is a famous physical exam book, and they start out by saying the for the foremost thing you need to do is take history, okay. And I it's a little bit preaching to the choir to tell palliative care docs, hey, you know, focus on taking the history. But this is what um, uh, uh, is really important here, okay. So who are nonverbal patients? Okay, these are my girls in uh, sort of younger years. So little kids who are preverbal are nonverbal patients, and we as pediatricians are used to taking care of preverbal patients, and we don't get upset or uh, think it's odd that a six-month-old can't tell you why they have a fever or what hurts and why they're crying. But if you look at, this is actually my daughter's first birthday. This is the Cleveland Zoo. Uh, this is me before I turn completely gray. Um, I, I think you'd be hard-pressed to say she's not communicating here. All right. She's telling me something. She's telling me something wrapped up in uh, in my sweater here. Not using words, but communicating. Okay, who else uh, needs to communicate? is people who have uh, these Patsy Muir valves. And this is David Muir. Anybody know who he was? Vented the Patsy Muir valve? Okay. So he uh, had Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and he had you know some terrible pneumonia, and ended up, ended up with a tracheostomy. Uh, woke up and wasn't able to talk. And through various communication difficulties, you know, communicated with his uh, doctors and with his parents, and said, hey, how come I can't talk? And they explained, well, you know, you have this uh, tube down here, it's below your vocal cords, so air is not going through your vocal cords. And him being an engineer said, well, what you need here is a one-way valve. And he sort of told his dad how to design it, and there's the passing Muir valve. And so people with tracheostomies can now speak and make sounds and so on. So there's lots of nonverbal patients we take care of, both on the pediatric side and on the adult side. Of course, we have these pre children we have the children or adults that I take care of a lot who have intellectual disabilities, physical disabilities, autism, um, some brain injuries. On the adult side, you get more into the de- dementia kinds of diagnoses. And then there's lots of other patients you might get called to see too, like you know, people with head and neck cancers, um, people that are tubed and in the ICU. They're not completely as, uh, sedated sometimes, and you can communicate some with them even though they can't speak. Now, I had a a colleague who used sign language, and and when I gave this talk, he said, hey, you know, you're doing this wrong. People who use sign language uh, use language, but they don't speak, and so don't call these nonverbal patients. So anyway, if a patient can use sign language, that's uh, 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 to their benefit, too. Anybody know what this sign is, if you go like that? It's like the one sign I know. It's pain, okay? It's like I think of it as two screws being screwed together, and headache is down here, and bellyache is down there. Our patients have these really fancy communication devices these days, and a lot of them run off just an iPad interface. And it's sort of amazing, though, that you know, you know, what does an app cost? A dollar ninety-nine or something like that, or they're free. There are these apps that cost like two hundred fifty bucks, but they turn your iPad into a communication device. You know, the same kind that like Stephen Hawking might have, where you know he he with his just little bit of finger movements can uh, you know, cause the computer to speak uh, in pr- pretty erudite sentences. All patients are communicative even if they don't use language. And so uh, you know, if a resident ever says, well, I couldn't you know, communicate with the patient or something like that, you know, I, s- I send them back and say, you know, go try and find out what's going on. All right, so this is kind of what happens to me not uncommonly, common reason people get sent to me. Doctor, there is something wrong with my child, my brother, my mom, my patient. I'm the nurse, and this is my patient I'm taking care of at home, and I just don't know what it is. Okay, Something's wrong. I don't know what it is. And I'm sure that you know already from the, uh, the pain people, the inability to communicate verbally does not negate the possibility that there's pain okay and if we as palliative care doctors and we as human beings have responsibility to treat pain it's sort of doubly hard for us because we really want to make sure that people are not in pain uh, and sometimes they can't tell us why they're in pain so what is this problem that the nurse or the parent brings to us you know why is it that they say you know there's something wrong well the reason is there's some new behavior there's some deviation from the norm in terms of function uh, or something else, and it can often be really, really subtle. Sometimes the family or whoever doesn't even know exactly what's different. They just know something's different. There's something about their expression. There's something about the way they're moving that just doesn't seem right to them. You have to understand that uh, for a lot of our patients and their families, they are you know, very closely enmeshed, and they're, you know, their whole lives are each other, and when anything's even a little bit different, uh, they'll know that something's wrong. Um, For our patients that have cerebral palsy and have spasticity, spasticity will get worse if there's pain, if there's anxiety, if there's other symptoms, Um, and so sometimes what they're saying is, you know, they're very tight today, so I think they're having pain, Um, and for patients that tend to have self-injurious behaviors, these may get worse um, when uh, they're having pain. And so here's sort of a classic example, and like, like it was, uh, you know, in the New York Times a few years ago. Um, basically, this uh, gentleman with an intellectual disability who lived in a care center, um, uh, he had increased self-injurious behavior. The doctors there increased his antipsychotic medications and failed to understand that he was trying to say, "My tooth hurts." Okay? Can't treat a toothache with risperdal. I mean, maybe enough Risperdal you can, but um, you can't treat appendicitis with Risperdal. Many people have tried. Okay, Changes in behavior are really common among people with intellectual disabilities. Okay, And why is that? Because they have trouble telling us otherwise what they need and what they want. And there are these causes that I kind of go through in my mind when, when I'm in, uh, in the clinic or on the floor uh, evaluating these patients. And I say, okay, well, there's all these different things that could be. What, what's my job to figure out? I'm a medical doctor. I, I, I occasionally play a little bit of psychiatry, but uh, you know that's not my my raison d'être. You know, um, my job is to figure out what's the what's on the medical side, engage with the psychiatric providers, and work together. And these are the things that I think about: adaptive dysfunction. I'm going to go through all these psychiatric disorders, medication side effects, and just broadly organic causes, medical stuff. And the more severely disabled the person is, the more severe um, the behavior will be. The more, that makes it more likely that there's actually a medical problem, okay, and less likely that it's a primary behavioral or psychiatric problem. Okay, so I want everybody to jot this down. No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, basically, this is a nice paper from Pediatrics about evaluating uh, children with autism uh, in terms of change of behavior. And I'll just point out that sort of right here is the pathway that says evaluate medical problems. Okay? It's first for a reason. Okay, Those are the things that it's, it's our job to uh, uh, rule out okay so what's adaptive dysfunction okay this is when a person is asked or expected to do something that they can't do okay they're not comfortable doing they don't know how to do it uh they're too big or too small i think of it as uh you know if you know any toddlers and you ask a toddler to do something that they're just not developmentally able to do what do they do tantrum okay often often they tantrum and our patients will do this, too, when they're uh, put in a situation where they're, they need to do something that they can't handle. Okay, That aside, I want to talk now about a framework that I use on sort of the medical side of things. Uh, These are the principles. Okay, longitudinal care is really, really important. And for those of you who I consider lucky enough to have sort of longitudinal relationships with patients, you get to know people over time. You get to know families over time. You get to know, you know, and those of you who've visited people uh, on the wards and had these sort of uh, uh, long-term relationships, know when you walk into a room from, you know, the family member's expression, Today's a good day, or today's not a not a good day, and from the way that they ask your questions, that maybe they're thinking about something that they're not telling you. You got to trust the people giving you the history. You know, it's sort of amazing. We, we don't do a lot of that in medicine. You, we're a lot of us on that sort of house thing of well, you know, they must be lying, they must be exaggerating the pain, they must uh, uh, have some kind of ulterior motive, and they may. But you got to trust what they say because they know the patient best. There are normal patterns for a patient, abnormal patterns. There's something called the recapitulation of symptoms, which I'll talk about. And then really just being systematic in your history, your physical, your problem solving, and your workup. There's practically nothing in the literature on this topic. If anything, there's a little bit in the nursing literature and it's mainly around how to assess pain in people intubated in the ICU. Uh, we do use various pain scales, as you know, for people that are nonverbal, And if somebody's able to even point to a number or point to one of the faces, that's great. Over in the NICU, they have this uh, you know reading the facial expression of a baby, and I, uh, th- this, this I always found actually very good is when the lower lip gets square, that baby's not happy. That's not just, oh, I'd like a little bit of milk, please. That's an unhappy baby. There's about one article in the medical literature that says anything about this, and it's from the emergency room, how to take care of people with autism, and essentially what it says is if you've seen one patient with autism, you've seen one patient with autism. Okay, they're all different. The longitudinal care is super important. You got to be familiar with the patient. You know, I, I it's my job is so much easier because I know people over decades. Sometimes um, I've seen their parents and their family members through thick and thin, and happy and sad, and all kinds of stuff. And we have a good relationship. I trust them. They trust me. Okay, uh, very very important. You're not always going to get that, and that that's sort of a problem. Okay, well, this is first day of medical school stuff. Ask open-ended questions. Talk about the onset and the the pain and so on. You know this, but sometimes it's worth remembering. Like, just go back to the beginning. Okay, when you're really stumped, go back to the beginning. You got to pay attention to nonverbal cues, the patients, the families, and your own. Am I looking at the clock? When am I gonna get out of this room? Patients know that, patients realize that. They may not consciously realize it, but they realize it. You can tell a lot about how worried a family member is, especially when you've seen them before. It takes a lot of time. This is why the kind of thing that I do is hard to do in your general pediatric practice where you have you know seven or eight minutes per patient. One of the other things that's important is to figure out what's the acuity of the problem. And so like uh, I saw this patient last week with CP and she hasn't been, the patient, they're trying to figure out why she won't walk anymore but she stopped walking like 10 years ago. And I, I said okay, well we can talk about why that might be but I don't have to figure it out that day. Okay, I mean that's clear. Now if she had stopped walking yesterday, you know I gotta spend a lot of time right now figuring out what's going on with that. And one of the questions I'll I'll ask, and and sometimes you really gotta sort of hone in on this with the family, is what's different? What's the difference in the function that's different? Okay, now everybody's got these sort of vegetative functions, okay, and if you know any of our families, you know that they all all have these pulse ox machines at home with a heart rate monitor, and they watch that thing, like some of us are watching the stock market today. you know, where, when, if the heart rate's going up, things are bad. And of course, you have got to say to them, "Well, how's the kid look?" Okay, but you know, the heart rate can be a signal something ain't right. How they're breathing, how they're digesting, both in and out. Um, are they having pain? Okay, and then everybody has some advanced kind of stuff, even our most uh, severely disabled people. So I'm going to go through some cases here. So this little guy take care of, it. and I was I was looking at these slides last night. He he must be 15. Uh, I made this talk so long ago. Um, he's uh, at this time about four years old, former preemie, has fairly mild CP. He's ambulatory. He walks with a sort of weird diplegic gait. And his mom brought him in and said, you know, he's limping. And I said, oh, that's uh, that's okay. Well, let's let's see him walk. And so he sort of you know toddled over with his. Um, diplegic gave the spasticity in his legs and I looked at him and I said you said he's limping And she's like yeah yeah see how he his right foot is turning more than it was uh, usually and he, I said walk again and I watched it and I said I, I gotta tell you I don't see any difference from how I remember him usually walking but I believe you Okay, so I sent him for an x-ray and it was negative and I said I don't know what to tell you Maybe he twisted it a little bit, um, but if it doesn't get better, come on back. And so she came back the next week and said he's still limping on it. So I sent him for another x-ray and lo and behold, now you can see that there's a little fibular fracture. And you know, in retrospect, you know he'd been horsing around with his brother and fell off a, you know, jumped off a couch, that kind of thing. So this is actually a very common pediatric presentation. A kid comes in with a little fracture that isn't seen on the first X-ray, and is, and then is seen when you X-ray it, and the callus formation starts. Okay, it's actually a very easy case in pediatrics, but it's sort of uh, the average person might get a little bit bogged down in this because while well, the kid has special needs. Oh, it didn't look like they were limping, you know. And if you'd never seen the kid walk before, you know, you wouldn't realize he was limping. But mom watches him walk every day, so I, it's easy for me to say, "Oh, you know, look. If you say he's limping, he's limping." Okay. Now he couldn't tell me my leg hurts. All he could do was was limp. Here's something I'd love to be able to study this, because I think the uh, the specificity of uh, this kind of pr- uh, question would be very uh, uh, good. I like to ask, especially when I have no idea what's going on, I like to ask the parent or whoever, what do you think's going on? And I think they're usually right. They're not, only, not 100%, but you know, somewhere approaching the specificity of a CAT scan, I think. And how do they figure this out? Well, similar symptoms that patients had in the past. When they did this before, it was a shunt malfunction. When they did this before, it was a bowel obstruction. When they did this before, it was right before they got a fever. Okay, this is the recapitulation of symptoms. Okay, so this is, this is actually one of, my, one of my favorite stories. Okay, I, w- I had taken over as a, a medical director of a group home for some group homes when I was in Cleveland, and they called me like the first Saturday after I did this and said, hey, I just got to call and tell you, Dr. Noritz, uh, the patient's hiccuping. And I said, well, what have I gotten myself into here that they're gonna call me on a Saturday and say, well, the hiccuping, and I'm like, what am I supposed to do about that, and why are they calling? But I sort of suppressed that and said, well, tell me what worries you about that to the nurse. She says, oh, well, you know, the last time he was hiccuping, he had a bowel obstruction. And I said, oh, well, well, that is wonderful information, and thank you for calling, and yes, by all means, send that uh, gentleman off to the uh, emergency room where he had a bowel obstruction and it was fixed, and, um, uh, you know, he had a shunt malfunction and this whole thing, okay? now. Do you ever read a medical book where it says, you know, one of the signs of bowel obstruction is hiccuping? It's not in there, right? But this patient, this, this nurse knew that patient. Okay, and you got to believe people. Now, as I'm thinking about this, this patient ended up dying from GI failure, which is the subject of our next talk. So we'll get to that. This was sort of a famous woman in the city of Cleveland. And every person who trained in neurosurgery in, the, in all three hospitals in the city of Cleveland had operated on her at one time or another. Okay. And, uh, you know, it was one of these things where the mom would bring her in and say, her shunt's not working. And then the neurosurgery resident would say, her shunt's fine. And then they'd admit her to the pediatric or medical service and she'd keep throwing up. And eventually, neurosurgery would take her to the operating room and her shunt would be blocked and they'd fix her shunt and she'd go home. And so everybody'd operate on her one time or another. And she also had pretty bad reflux, and so I was sitting, I was in the clinic with her one day, and mom was sort of very calmly telling me, you know, she's been throwing up more, I think her reflux is bad, I don't know what that's, about. I said, you know, let me stop you for a second here. You know, a week ago, you brought her in frantic that her shunt wasn't working because of vomiting, and now you're sitting here very calmly telling me about her vomiting. Why, why, is, why are you not worried about her shunt? And she's like, oh, I know the difference. That vomiting versus this vomiting, and I'll sort of spare you the gory details of, you know, why the shunt vomiting was so different from the, uh, you know, just regular reflux vomiting. But mom knew, okay, and mom was pretty close to batting a thousand for it was whether was it a shunt malfunction or not. This is the recapitulation of symptoms, and I, I teach this especially when it comes to shunts, in that some people are pukers, some people get headaches, some people have seizures. Some people have change of mental status, but people tend to have the same thing over and over again. Like the people that get headaches tend to get headaches as a sign of their shunt malfunction. And all this requires that you trust the caregivers, the people that are giving you the information, which is sometimes hard to do. So just you know, step back and say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna trust what people tell me in the year 2018. Now I ask, often when they don't know, kind of really what's up, do you think this is pain? Something's going on. They're hitting themselves more. They're pacing, whatever it is. Do you think they're having pain? And parents are usually pretty good, and they'll say, "Yeah, I'm. I'm really sure that this is pain. I don't know where, but it's pain." Or they'll say, "Yeah, this is not a pain behavior for him." So, what are the things that cause pain in a person with these medical complexity or serious neurological injury? Well, they're all the same things that cause pain in anybody else. But it can be hard to really get to those symptoms, and so, you know. like pancreatitis, you know, is not necessarily the hardest diagnosis to make in a person who's verbal. I have this pain, it's worse when I eat, it's worse when I lean back, it's better when I lean forward, I've been having this diarrhea, da, da da da. You know, it's worse when I drink alcohol, things like that. In our patients, it's very hard to figure out, and so you just sort of have to order an amylase and lipase a lot to try to figure it out because they're not going to give you this history. But there are so many things on this list, and some of them are terrible, and some of them you know, are fatal if you don't figure out what it is, and some of them are, you know, it's an ear infection, it's an ingrown nail. You know, they can be pretty mundane. But you've got to be pretty thorough in your evaluation to figure that out. Okay, so what's the first thing you should do? Start with the vital signs. you know. So this is one of these me culpa kind of stories. So same group home. Uh, they called me sort of in the late afternoon that this guy was really... Agitated, And he was a guy who got agitated from time to I time. Mean, he was 34, he had intellectual disability, he had autism, <clears throat> seizures, and he had an order for clonazepam PRN when he got agitated. And they, but they were supposed to call the doctor, and they called and said, you know, he's really agitated, I want to give him some clonazepam. I said, hey, that's great, go ahead and do that. Um, and they called back a couple hours later and said, you know, he's still really agitated, and I thought maybe he's uh, uh, wheezing a little bit, so I gave him an albuterol, and he didn't really get any better. Um... And we gave him another dose of clonazepam, and they called back and said, he's, I just, I'm really kind of just, they were no longer talking about the agitation, they started talking about the the breathing. And I said, wait, wait wait a second. What are his vital signs? And she's like, oh, I didn't take him. And I said, well, go take him and come back. And she came back, she's like, you know, da-da-da-da, and his respiratory rate's 30. And I said, oh, crap, send him to the emergency room, and he died. Okay? Why was he agitated? Couldn't breathe. All right why couldn 't he breathe? Septic all right now it'd have been nice had I thought to ask for vital signs the first time around it'd have been nice if the nurse had offered to give me vital signs the first time around, but you 've got to ask and you've got to know what 's normal for a patient and what 's not okay in your exam, and this is especially important for. You adult trainees who kind of like to do things, you know, one, you know, head down, neurologic exam down, or something like that. You got to be flexible when you ta- You know, if you remember taking care of kids, you know, you got to examine what they give you first. If they're not screaming, examine the heart and lungs. If they are screaming, examine something else. You know, keep talking to the family till they stop screaming. Uh, I like to pay particular attention to the things that I'm not good at. Okay, that's teeth, that's toenails. Um, To some extent, that's hips and other joints. Um, you got to look at the stuff you're not normally looking at, like the back of the patient. Sure, there's lots of great stuff on the front, but all the patients have a back, too, and things can uh, uh, hide there. You gotta know where patients have hardware and other stuff that could get infected or get out of place or something like that. And sometimes you don't even know and you just gotta go searching around for scars and say, oh, you know, they must have had some kind of a surgery here and I wonder what this scar is there and so on. So you gotta be systematic in your problem solving. And it doesn't matter what system you use, just use a system. This is the one I tend to use, vitamin D. And if you're ever with me in clinic and you're telling me a story and I look up to the right like this, I'm going through vitamin D in my, in my brain. I'm trying to, as you're telling me the story, I'm trying to make a differential for what might be wrong with uh, uh, the patient here. Okay. There are lots of uh, other sort of rubrics. Uh, anybody use another one? Okay. What are the diagnostic possibilities? Okay. We're taught in medical, you know, to some extent in medicine, when you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras, right? Okay? But I'll tell you, it depends on where you are. Okay? If you're in the zebra enclosure at the zoo, it's zebras. Okay? Um, my cl- I, keep, I keep hitting the microphone, I'm sorry. My clinic is full of zebras. Okay? We collect them. Uh, we love them, and, and, and they're very, very interesting. So, you know, all of you will know, know, you know, every patient you're seeing with hypertension doesn't have a pheochromocytoma. You don't even sort of entertain that until very long into the differential. But there are some conditions, some genetic conditions, where pheochromocytoma is actually fairly common. And if your patient has von Hippel-Lindau syndrome, neurofibromatosis, and there's a few others, you better start to think about pheochromocytoma pretty early. Um, Malignant hyperthermia is really uncommon unless you have Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Um, aortic dissection, again, is sort of not very common. It's one of those things if you're ever working in the emergency room, you've got to think about you know, people who come with chest pain because otherwise you won't think about it. But if you, somebody comes in and they have Marfan syndrome, they have lois Dietz syndrome, they have Turner syndrome, you've got to think about this first because it's more common in those uh, uh, conditions. What's likely based on the age and gender of the patient? Okay. So on the pediatric side, we have this disease called Kawasaki's. It's an inflammatory vasculitis. On the adult side, we have polymyalgia rheumatica. It's an inflammatory vasculitis. There are no older adults that get Kawasaki's disease. There are no babies that get polymyalgia rheumatica. You just got to know what's common in this age range. Breast cancer is certainly much more common in women than it is in men. But it can happen in men. You can't dismiss the possibility in men. Uh, But to my knowledge, there are no women that get prostatitis. And so if you're entertaining that in a female patient who's not transgendered, you know, keep looking. What's likely based on the expected course of the disease? Okay, so there are some diseases... Uh, syndromes that we really know a lot about. Okay? Like Down syndrome is one, and that you know, whether you're a, pediatric, uh, a pediatrician or adult doctor, you can take care of people with Down syndrome. You really should know there are these things that are more common in Down syndrome, like hypothyroidism like atlanoaxial instability, you know, where the, the neck ligaments are weak um, and they can get a, a myelopathy, celiac disease, and then as they get older, dementia. And so to some extent, you can know when you're taking care of somebody with Down syndrome, these things might happen and we've got to look for them. And there are even specific recommendations if you're taking care of somebody with Down syndrome. Screen for thyroid disease at this interval. Uh, you know, uh, screen with a CBC for leukemia at this interval. In cerebral palsy, which is the disease I take care of the most, there are all these things that are really, really common. And we, again, have a rubric when we take care of them, whether it's in the primary care setting or in our cerebral palsy clinic, to screen for hip dislocation, uh, low bone density, uh, and so on. What medications or treatments is the patient on? Okay, And here's where things can really get pretty uh, uh, rough, and it's really helpful to have um, a pharmacist that you can work with. And so here's a partial list of drugs that cause pancreatitis. Okay, I, I always come back to pancreatitis because it's one of those things that I'm not going to diagnose in a nonverbal patient unless I think about it. Okay, Now, the one uh, that, if you ever see this on a, on a med list, valproic acid, just in your mind, there ought to be a word association, pancreatitis, valproic acid, pancreatitis. Not that it happens to everybody, but it happens enough times that I if I ever see that on a list, and pancreatitis even remotely possible, I'm going to go looking for it. Um, lots of drugs have common side effects, particularly the seizure drugs, which a lot of our patients take. All right, here's what I want to say about workup. Be judicious, okay? I'm, I'm not here to say, just send everything, okay, because you don't know. I'm saying, take what you've realized from, t- from the history, uh, and decide what you want to send from there. Okay? And the pa- parents will often come in and say, you know what he needs is just an MRI of his whole body. And you can't even order an MRI of the whole body. I mean, like, how, how would that even work? You've got to narrow it down somehow. Here's some more cases. Okay, this uh, uh, was a young teenage boy, nonverbal. He had a particular chromosome abnormality. He came with fever, cough, and vomiting. Exam benign, described as happy, interactive, non-toxic. No respiratory distress, abdomen unremarkable. I went in and saw him. He was febrile, he was coughing, he puked a little bit here and there. What's the working diagnosis coming up from the emergency room? Pneumonia, okay? He had this chest x ray, which was sort of fuzzy. You know, he didn't take a real deep breath because, you know, he's a kid with intellectual disability who didn't uh, uh, follow directions. He's got some scoliosis. Okay, fine, it's pneumonia. Perfectly plausible, right? Bring him in, put him in antibiotics, and he doesn't get better. Fever continues. He won't keep anything down. And then we get another x-ray, and he's got a pleural effusion now. And so we're, oh, okay, well, now he's got a peri par- effusion. That happens. Go in, and the parents, who, by the way, only spoke Spanish, keep telling us his belly hurts. And I said... Oh, okay. Let me examine his belly, and he's one of these little kids, and you saw, you saw his scoliosis, and you can go in, and this one, you know, he's so small, and his scoliosis is so bad, you can like reach down and grab the front of his spine, through his abdomen, and it is the most benign abdomen you've ever touched. I mean, it is soft. You can, you know, shake the bed like this, you know, palpate everywhere, and he's just happy. And his parents are like, no, 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 his, be- his belly, hurts. In Spanish. Okay, here's that peritoneal par- effusion. All right, And we sat on this for like a couple of weeks and we're like, we tapped the effusion, we're like, what's going on? And he was on the antibiotics and he actually never looked all that sick. But every day, you know, the parents, uh, stomacho. So I said, you know what we want to do here is listen to the parents. So I got a CT of his belly and what did he have? Perforated duodenal ulcer. That's why he had a pleural effusion. Never really had pneumonia. Um, I think we managed this non-operatively, but like this was the answer. So one, uh, one thing I took away with this is, from this is, and I've done this a number of times, whenever I don't listen to the family, I put in the back of my mind that, hey, I didn't listen to the family, and if I dismissed what the family said, I'm like, I'm, I might have to come back to this. And the other thing is that if our patients are gonna hide stuff, it's gonna be in the belly. Okay, that's sort of the biggest area of real estate. This was sort of an interesting patient. This this guy had tuberous sclerosis, uh, which is a disease of basically every organ. They typically have autism. They have uh, you know these weird vascular malformations in basically every organ. Um, and he was nonverbal, and he was uh, he had autism, and he was normally a very like happy kind of guy as long as he didn't bother him. And it was sort of like weird, like every. A few times I went out to the group home to make my rounds, they would say, oh, you know, he's not acting right. Take a look at, at, at him. And I'd say, oh, okay, well, what's not right? And i said, well, he seems sort of off balance. And I looked at him, and I'm like, okay, maybe, yeah, maybe okay, I'll give you that. He seems off balance, and I examine him. And I'm like, you know, this is sort of maybe an earlier infection. Let's give him some antibiotics, and maybe that's all it is. And he got better, and sometimes he would fall down. Um, and I said, well, let's check his labs, and uh, his, his lamictal level was pretty high, and I said, oh, well, we'll reduce his lamictal level, and he got better. And then one day, he was sort of acting weird, and he also had uh, sort of this dark brown, reddish urine, and we discovered he had kidney stones, um, and he, things would come and go, and he underwent lithotripsy, and he got better. And then, uh, you know, he was unsteady again, and I did another exam, and I thought I saw some nystagmus. And I thought, oh, you know, he's having some paroxysmal vertigo, and I treated him with Benadryl and what have you, and he got better. I actually have no idea whether any of the things I did make him better or not. Okay, And you can't assume that just because you did something and then they got better, that that's why they got better. Um, Honestly, I have no idea what was wrong with him during any of those episodes. Um, But you're going to get called upon to try to do something. And it's worth trying to do something if you have a plausible explanation uh, for what might be going on. Okay, so back to the framework. Longitudinal care is extremely important and when you can get those kinds of relationships, try to keep them. Uh, you got to trust what the parents are telling you. You got to uh, 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 really pin them down as what's normal and what's abnormal for the patient. Think about that recapitulation of symptoms. What has this symptom meant before for this family? Um, And being systematic uh, uh, in your workup. All right. Uh, here's, uh, there's a couple of really good uh, uh, references. This top one uh, is a book that we're going to reference several times today, Care of the Child with uh, Severe Neurologic impairments, a fairly new book. Well, it's actually not that new. But anyway, Julie Howard, who wrote this uh, on our pediatric listserv, is referred to as the Oracle. And sometimes you know somebody will put forth a question and they'll just say, oh, well, I wonder what the Oracle has to say about this, and then she'll weigh in and so on. Um, uh Uh, Anyway, so that's all I have for this portion, which is about care of nonverbal patients. We have two more lectures for you. Questions about this one. Thoughts about this one. Cases that you're ruminating in your mind about. Like, I wonder what that was. Can you
0: talk a little bit more about come back to clinic compared to admission for, I'm trying to, the analogy in my mind is fever of unknown origin after sure. a certain
1: amount of time. Okay, so th- this is this is important. And this is, this is great when, you know, I consider myself a primary care doctor. It's just that all my patients have these special needs. And as a primary care doctor, you sometimes have a luxury that you don't have when you're in the emergency room or in urgent care, which is to say, I know this family, and I trust them, and if something goes bad, they'll bring the kid to the hospital. And I don't have to, uh, it's not like I have to put them in the hospital just because something might happen. If I know the par- parents are going to be attentive, if I know the parents know what to look for, and they don't look severely ill right now, I can say, let's try this, bring it back tomorrow, bring it back next week, bring it back in two weeks, whatever it is. Um, so, But the things that you need to have in order to sort of do that rather than admit them to the hospital, which nobody wants to be admitted to the hospital. The, pe- the residents up on the floor don't want you to admit the patient to the hospital. Um, so the patient needs to be stable and look stable and you have some expectation they're going to stay stable. And they've got to be in a sort of family situation that will allow them to get back should something change. And so that means the parents have to be trustworthy. Uh, in terms of how they assess the patient. They have to have reliable transportation. They have to have a phone that works. Um, I'm much more likely to do it for somebody that lives here in town than somebody that lives pretty far away. Um, and each one of the, you know, but just each time I, uh, uh, each situation like that's different. Okay? Uh, and and you get a feeling also after doing this for a while, that kid's going to turn south or more importantly, I think that mom's really more worried than I want to see her worried, okay? And to some extent, that's often how I go off, is if the parents are not confident they can go home and muddle through, then I definitely will admit them. Cool, all right. Thanks, we're going to take, take a break before the, the next one. All right. Sure.
0: Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you'll rate and review this podcast and share it with your colleagues and your friends. So you don't miss any of our new content. Make sure you are subscribing to PCIC podcasts. PCIC is sponsored by PALMED, where our aim is to advance palliative care globally and ensure all clinicians have the latest knowledge and skill. To access more PCIC content, please visit palmed.us to review our extensive open access PCIC curriculum.